Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Craig Sisterson about his new book, Southern Cross Crime, the pocket essential guide to the crime fiction, film and TV of Australia and New Zealand. Southern Cross Crime is the first comprehensive guide to modern Australian and New Zealand crime fiction writing. It showcases books from more than 200 storytellers, along with a selection that have made it to the big and to the small screen. Craig Sisterson, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Kia and good day. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's great to chat. My pleasure, Craig. I suppose I've got to start with the obvious question. What's your fascination with crime fiction and why Antipodean crime fiction in particular? I've loved mystery fiction and detective fiction since I was a kid, like a, like a lot of people who love crime writing. You know, you get into it. Um, it was the Hardy Boys for me. And then Sherlock Holmes and um, Agatha Christie's Poirot and some other books like uh, Agatha and Sex books with Nils Olaf Friends. And I, I only realized in hindsight, I was reading translated crime fiction as a 12 year old, you know, kind of thing. Um, my school library had these great Swedish um, kind of comedy crime novels, which I didn't really realize until years later when I wrote an article for good reading about Swedish crime that I'd read Swedish crime as an adolescent. I'm just wondering, um, um... Wondering how crime can crime and comedy can combine, but anyway, we'll go on. Yeah, no, they can be really good. Uh, you think of you think of movies like Ocean's Eleven and stuff like that, though. Of course, yeah. Crime and, or Snatch or Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and stuff. So it can be quite good. Um, so I think it's always been a lifelong love of mystery. I love. I've just loved reading in general, like fantasy, mystery, uh, and dramas, and and nonfiction, and lots of other books. But mystery has always been with me since I was a kid, and. Um, in terms of kind of how it led to this uh, passion for Australian and New Zealand crime writing, that's really come out for me in the last dozen or so years after I returned to New Zealand after a world trip and backpacking through Latin America. And um, I had just discovered around then that there was more New Zealand and Australian crime writing than I realised. I had been aware of some, and I'd read a few books here and there beforehand, but it just seemed to be growing. And I started reviewing for newspapers and magazines. Um, and I just kind of made sure that I was always including some New Zealand and Australian crime novels because they weren't always being covered either overseas or by our local reviewers um, who were, you know, arts and books reviewers who would occasionally review a crime novel. And if they did, they would probably review a US or UK one. So right from the start, kind of when I started reviewing just over 12 years ago, I included some New Zealand and Australian ones, and it's just grown since then as as it's grown on both sides of the Tasman with more writers, more fresh voices, the quality's so high, and there's more and more. And um, yeah, through a, a stumbly, twisty few steps, it, it led to this book. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess when people think yeah. of crime fiction, they think mostly of international, big international names, you know, the obvious ones of mm. Agatha Christie and Ruth Rendell, Ian Rankin, Patricia Cornwall, and then I guess a string of Americans like Dashiell Hammett and uh, Raymond Chandler, maybe more recently James Elroy and James Patterson, Michael Connolly even, and the list, of, list goes on and on. 
Oh, yes, hundreds and thousands, yeah. Absolutely. What do you think makes a work of crime fiction internationally appealing? And does crime fiction have to have international appeal? That's a really good question, Greg. It's tricky to know what makes something internationally appealing because if publishers and authors and everyone knew that, then all the books would be internationally uh, appealing <laughs> and they would all be it's like you know how do you make a really great movie that that's gonna you know do a billion dollars at the box office if everyone knew everyone would do it but then if everyone was doing it that'll be the same so they probably wouldn't do it so um, because they wouldn't be any different um so it is tricky from that standpoint i think some of what makes something internationally appealing is just if it's a really good story um, if there's there's a great hook, there's a great idea, there's something that makes the readers want to turn the page. And I particularly think that I like, and not every reader's like this, but I think having talked to literally thousands of crime readers and hun several hundred authors I've interviewed over the last decade, um, character and setting are really important in crime. Crime's often thought of as very plot-driven because of the Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes-style mysteries. And those puzzly mysteries, Naya Marsh as well, and, and plenty of other Australian and New Zealand authors, um, those are important. They kind of engage our brains and as part of the mystery that we like. Can we solve it? Can we work it out before the detective? It's so clever. It's just really interesting to be part of this crossword puzzle-like book. But Crime can also get you in the gut and the heart, I think, and it, it does that when it has great characters, and it can also have impact in terms of the, the setting. And when I say setting, I mean physical setting, but also the social setting, uh, the place and the people that inhabit that place, which can be different all around the world. And so for something to be internationally appealing, I think it was just a cracking good story. It's written well, and it has a strong, especially character, and strong sense of place. It has a potential to do well internationally. And then the rest of it is up to in the lap of the publishing gods. Um, because, you know, I've read enough books, literally, uh, you know, 1500 plus crime novels in the last decade and a bit, um, to know that great books get overlooked and good books um, go bananas and some not so good books even go bananas sometimes. So it's not always a matter of quality. It's not always uh, pure meritocracy. Some of it is luck. Um, Several years ago, you mentioned Elmore Leonard, and Elmore Leonard once gave like 10 rules of good writing. I don't think it was specifically crime writing, but 10 rules of good writing. And they were quite famous and published in some newspapers, and they get brought out again and again. And several years ago, I remember The Guardian in the UK, when I was living in New Zealand, brought out an article that I saw, and they'd asked all of these authors, like a dozen, two dozen authors, Booker Prize winners and others, um, what their rules of writing would be. And I, it always struck me, I really loved Ian Rankin's ones because he had the, the normal read a lot, write a lot, and then all these things about show, don't tell that you would expect, you know, and, and you know, catch the reader's attention. But his last two, I thought were very important and no one else mentioned them. And they, he was like, um, if you want to do well as a writer and have a career, number nine, get lucky. Number 10, stay lucky. There is just a lot that's out of your hands. I mean, I, I see every month and every year um, I see great books that um, take off and they really deserve it like The Dry by Jane Harper, Scrublands by Chris Hammer, internationally like this year we're talking a lot about Blacktop Wasteland by Sean Cosby which is a brilliant novel but there are other really good novels that haven't taken off as much and they're also really good so some of it's you know a bit of luck and a bit of fortune and a bit of timing you know Emma Viskic, a Melbourne author who's fantastic with her Caleb Zellick series she won the 
Ned Kelly Award for Best First Novel the year before Jane Harper won it for The Drive. But Emma wasn't published over here in the UK and the United States until after The Drive by a year or two. You know, it's just so, so The Drive became this really big thing. Emma's published over here now. She's got great reviews. She was shortlisted for The Gold Dagger. Um, you know, so good response. But, you know, it's not always... She won the same stuff as Jane, but didn't get published straight away. Jane kind of got published almost immediately, went bananas. There's a lot of stuff that's out of your hands. All the authors can do is, is write a good book, and all of us who love good books can do is read them and talk about them to others. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my book, as, as I'm like saying, okay, you know of a handful of New Zealand and Australian authors. You might know Jane Harper, Chris Hammer, maybe you know Peter Temple or Michael Robotham, Paul Cleave, Van Simon. You might know some of these people. Um, here's a lot. Here's more about them, which is fun to learn. And here's a lot of other authors you might love as well. So it's kind of what I'm trying to do, shine a wee bit of light on my Kiwi and Aussie brethren. To break open the crime fiction universe, I suppose. Who are the breakthrough Antipodean crime fiction authors today? And, and why are they successful? Well, Jane's the obvious one of the last five years or so. And she has kind of like Stig Larsson did and or Henning Mankel and Stig Larsson together kind of did for Scandi Noir about 15, you know, 12, 15 years ago. And again, in the same situation, there'd been lots of good Scandinavian authors before. Some had won awards, some had, had great reviews, but they kind of, in terms of sales and wider notice, really opened the door. And then a whole lot more Scandinavian authors got translated into English and distributed in the UK in the US. And the same thing's happening now. You've seen after following Jane's success, you're seeing more and more Australian and New Zealand authors being published in the UK, which didn't used to happen. That was something that was always very frustrating for me when I first started reviewing back in the late 2000s, like 2008, 9, 10 kind of thing, um, is that there would be very good Australian and New Zealand books. They would get great reviews when I was involved with awards and would actually send the books um, to UK and US reviewers who are some of the top reviewers in the world, they would read them and say they're some of the best books overall they'd read all year, even if they were published by a big publisher. And I don't want to, you know, point fingers, but, uh, you know, one of the big five publishers, you know, people know who they all are. But even when they were published by them, they weren't automatically distributed or published in the UK and the US. And they didn't even have to be translated. They're not like Scandi Crime where you've got to pay for them to be translated and get a translation. They could have just been kicked straight in. And they weren't for whatever reasons, for whatever, you know, Michael Robotham's discussed with me many times how he's been told over and over throughout his career, don't bother setting a book in Australia because Australians won't be interested in it and the international market won't be interested in it. And then, oh, yeah, Jane Harper. Now everyone's like, oh, yeah, we love Outback Noir. It was the market was always there. The readers were always there. Um, sorry, you asked me to mention a couple of names, so I'll mention a handful that are very accessible for everyone around the world if they're listening, and particularly for UK and US. And so it's kind of a sign. So uh, JP Pamari, um, Call Me Evie, came out last year. It won the Noah Marsh Award for um, Best First Novel, was also shortlisted for some Australian book prizes, the ABIA Awards over there, and kind of like a general book award, not just a crime award, you know, kind of thing. Um, very good book. So, and his new one in the clearing, um, which was just a finalist for this year's Nine Marsh Awards, he's a Maori author who lives in Melbourne, is coming out here in December in the UK. Uh, Gary Disher, who I think is just a wondrous writer. He's been popular in Germany for a long time. He, he was a bit hit and miss with his UK publication with, um, you know, he's been writing for 30 years, but a great press called Viper Press has picked up his Hirsch series. So they've recently published 
Bendawash Road. They've just in the last month here published Peace and um, Consolations just come out in Australia. I literally just read it last weekend. It's a wonderful book. Um, and that I would imagine Viper will be bringing out over here next year. So it's great that he's out here over here now. Um, Vanda Simon's been terrific for years. Um, she's now been published by a UK publisher. She was one of those ones who got geographically siloed by a major publisher and not distributed beyond the Australian New Zealand shores. She's been picked up by a London publisher. They've published three of her Sam Shepard series. The fourth bound comes out early next year. They're great. Um, Gabriel Bergmoser's The Hunted has been getting some good attention over here um, this year. I know it did well in Australia as well, kind of a crime bearing towards horror outback noir novel. Um, um, the Girl in the Mirror by Rose Carlyle has been quite a big hit, I think, down there in Australia and New Zealand, and that's been published in the UK and the US as well. It's been getting particularly some notice in the US. It's been getting a lot of really good reviews over there in the last month or so. Um, so those are a handful of names. I mean, I've, my book's got 250 people and I could go on and on. <laughs> so, yeah, Craig, I think you've just outlined enough reading for a year or two for Australian <laughs> there, just in that... Uh, brief explanation. I want to pick up on a term you, you referred to just a minute ago, which is noir. And it's something mm. we closely associate with Los Angeles or American noir, particularly through yeah. Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. Uh, but is there a, an Australian or New Zealand noir? Taking a step back, the term noir, obviously French for black, and, and it was used for those type of um, Hammett and McDonald and uh, Chandler private eye tales and the flow on films, you know, some of the Hitchcockian and other kind of films, Chinatown and others of that kind of mid, mid and late 20th century. It's kind of become a little bit conflated just with crime fiction nowadays. Like people often just like when they say Scandi noir, it's not like all the books are what we would think of as classic noir in the film noir sense or in the, in the Hammett Chandler sense. We're kind of using it more just to mean crime fiction a lot of the time. Like uh, a, a terrific reviewer and a terrific critic over here, awards judge and other things, Barry Forshaw, who's written a number of these kind of books. I actually was inspired by Barry's series to write this one on Australia and New Zealand because I thought we should shine a light on some of our authors too. Um, but he uses noir, like British noir, American noir, Nordic noir, Euro noir, uh, historical noir. And really, it just means crime, mystery and thrillers when it's being used in that way, because how it was previously used was kind of more narrow, a certain type of very dark um, story, a very dark, often crime related story. Um, but in terms of if we have an Australian and New Zealand noir, I think um, like any of these things, when you say Scandi noir, and people say, oh, it's, you know, it's the bleak setting, it's wintry, there's the loner detective who's probably an alcoholic, um, and uh, a little bit of a maverick, and they're a little bit dour, and there's lots of social issues entwined, whether it's in the city or in the rural areas. I mean, you can say that for Scandi crime, but you're kind of cutting out a lot of it if you just think it's all like that, because there's a far bigger broad, broad range, even if that's kind of the brand. And it's a little bit the same with Australia and New Zealand. As I hope my book shows is that there's a massive diverse array of stories, um, settings, styles, um, and different stories uh, set in New Zealand and Australia and overseas. I think there are things that we bring that are different. Um, the impact of the Australian New and New Zealand setting, I think, is a lot stronger. It's maybe akin to the American South or Southwest when. Even if, even if we're city folk, even if we're urban folk, 
the importance of land and our connection to land to us is kind of just intrinsic in our countries. And the Australian landscapes, whether it's the outback or the kind of wool and wheat stuff of Gary Dish's books or the Blue Mountains or whether it's in New Zealand kind of, you know, national parks and small towns and, and coastline. It's, there's a wildness to our physical natural settings that's different to like an English village mystery, that's different to a rural farmland in Wales or anywhere else. Stella Duffy at the, uh, the Thexton Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival last year mentioned the weather and Jane was agreeing with that as well. The weather in Australia and New Zealand has such a significant impact, not just drought and heat, but also the changing weather in New Zealand. You know, if you're hiking, you know, rivers and so many people, we don't have any animals that can eat you in New Zealand or animals that can kill you. No poisonous snakes, no poisonous spiders, no saltwater crocodiles, nothing like that. And yet so many people perish in the New Zealand wilderness basically because of changeable weather and the, the harshness. It's kind of, there's a harsh beauty to the Australian and New Zealand landscapes. And I think that flows into our crime fiction, whether our books are rural or not, because even our urban books, we're surrounded, like the countryside is often close to us in our cities. Um, you know, we're right on the coast. We've got the mountains against the backdrop of a short way away. Even people in cities often go there to get out of the city. And there's a we grow up feeling a little bit more connected to the land. And we also have really strong indigenous populations, regardless of um, numbers, both the Aboriginal and Maori communities are very strong in terms of culture and importance to our countries and increasingly so thankfully in more recent years. So I think the landscape and the weather and also our sense of humour, our sense of humour is different to British and Americans. So I think that's something fresh and interesting we bring, along with being able to deliver these kind of universal stories that people love as well. You also mentioned this idea that there's great diversity of authors and settings and characters, uh, and there's a lot of demand for diversity, uh, either politically or culturally or, or whatever. Uh, how has this been manifested in our own backyard, as in, you know, the Antipodeans, and where are the gaps in that diversity? Uh, that's a very good question, Greg, and I think it's a very important question too. Uh, when I was saying diversity, I was more meaning a broad range of settings, styles and stories, both the places, urban and countryside, um, the styles, whether it's comic crime fiction, cosy crime fiction, serial killer thrillers and noir, and there's a whole lot in between, you know, romantic thrillers and stuff, um, ages of authors and stuff. When it comes down to, if we're just going to, really direct when it comes down to racial diversity we've still got a long way to go it is getting better there are more authors of color coming through it would I'm, be good if there were even more i noticed you actually have a section on indigenous writers uh in your book as well, well i don't have a section on indigenous writers in the book but um for for the good reading article i did do a little like here five to try so they are sprinkled throughout the book i'm not in, i haven't for want of a better phrase, I haven't ghettoized them into a section. Like they are sprinkled throughout the book. But for some things I've done, like talking about the book, I have wanted to shine a light and say, here are some authors of colour, here are some Indigenous authors. Because we have Indigenous authors, Maori and Aboriginal, and then we also have some fantastic authors of colour um, who are, you know, um, immigrants or children of immigrants from non-English speaking countries. So Solari Gentle, who's Sri Lankan, you know, uh, Sri Lankan Australian, uh, Brennavan Nangalingam, who's also Sri Lankan New Zealand, I believe. Uh, Nali, Nalini Singh, who's a Fijian Indian New Zealander. Um, Marlon Nunn, brilliant novels set in Africa, Emmanuel Cooper series. So we do have some authors of colour and we have 
more Maori and Aboriginal authors coming through. There's been some, I tried to shine a light on some that have perhaps been from, you know, 10, 15 years ago that aren't so well known overseas, but deserve to be. And then we've got new ones like JP Pamari coming through. Um, Emmanuel and Amberlyn Quaymalina, who wrote Catching Talacrow, which is a wonderful young adult kind of crime, mystery, small town, slightly supernatural tale, which is really wonderful. And that's published over here in the UK. That's worth digging out too. And I think it was a ghost bird by Lisa Fuller recently won a Queensland award. Unfortunately, that was after I submitted the manuscript. So that's not included in the manuscript, but I have talked about that book since when I've been talking about Australian and New Zealand crime fiction. So it's, um, I would like to see a lot more. I've got some ideas of perhaps ways that hopefully I can um, help out and on that front and be an ally as well. I think we need more, um, we need more stories from authors of colour in general and, and storytelling in general. And since crime fiction is something I love and I'm involved in, I would like to see more of it here too. But it, it's slowly getting better, but it could be a lot better. So that's a gap as well as an example. So You're also involved in a lot of judging panels for crime fiction awards, uh, which prompts the question, what kind of criteria do you use to judge a book one way or the other? <laughs> that's a really good question too, Greg. Um, yeah, I've been involved in awards in Australia, New Zealand and the UK as a, as a judge, um, sometimes as a head judge or chief judge, sometimes as a part of a panel. I'm just looking for the best novel among those I get to read. And for me, that's something that hooks my attention, that has a great story, great characters and setting. And I also personally like if the writing is really good too. Not, not to the point where the writing distracts from the story. I think it is a fine line. But, um, and this is a personal thing for me, but I, since I began reviewing, I was often trying to shine a light and, and because there was that literary snobbery we've had New Zealand and Australia and to a lesser extent, the UK and the US, whereas you compare it to somewhere like France, where crime fiction has for a long time just been seen as another very worthy part of the literary landscape. But in New Zealand and Australia and a little bit in the UK and the US, there seems to be just in certain circles, not, not widely, but in certain important circles, whether it's literary awards or literary festivals and literary critics, um, not readers, not librarians, not booksellers, not people who actually do all the reading and buy, but there's this idea that literary fiction, which is a genre in itself, is somehow a superior genre, and that romance and crime and fantasy and sci-fi and woman, woman's fiction, in quotes, and everything else is lesser. And that's just crap, <laughs> to put a, not to put a fine point on it. There is some wondrous literary fiction. There's also a lot of really mediocre literary fiction. And, and often what happens, as I saw in the past, is that people would to bolster this claim, they would compare, say, a James Patterson book, which is a fast-moving, fun beach read for people that doesn't have a lot of character or setting depth. And that's not a shot at James. It's just the type of books he writes. They're twist-filled, fun thrillers that are good to read. But you wouldn't say in any way that he's the most stylistic crime writer, like someone like Elmore Leonard or James Lee Burke or someone like that. Um, and they would compare that to a Booker Prize winner and go, look, it's not as good, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, okay. And I remember uh, many years ago, someone told me once, they're like, well, if anyone ever says that crime fiction can't be as good as literary fiction, just throw a Peter Temple book at them. 
And I think that pretty much sums it up. And I used to add or, th or push a bookcase of James Lee Burke on top of them because he's done about 40, you know, kind of thing. And he's, he's been called America's best novelist. And I think he's definitely in the argument for that, regardless of genre. He's just flat out America's best novelist. Um, or at least in the discussion for it, you know, you can have a have a, a fun literary chat about that. And there's so many other authors. And so for me, as a personally as a judge, I do like the ones that are not trying too hard on that front, but they find that really good balance. Someone like Gary Disher, he just writes beautifully. Jane Harper, you read The Dry, it's a lovely story and it's a great, like pulls you in and you care about the characters and you're tense, exciting and intriguing. But it's also, there's just lovely little phrases in the description or the way they... Um, describe character interactions and you don't even have to do it with four pages of description about the light coming through the window or anything <laughs> you know you can just do it in little phrases michael Connolly's real genius at this um perhaps with his journalist background he uses what he calls the telling detail and so rather you know you meet a place or you meet a person and rather than having two pages describing it in endless detail trying to build up a really cool vivid picture for the reader he would just have that little phrase you know and um, it's not one of his, but I, I remember from a screenwriting thing years ago, it was like someone was described as like they looked like uh, a garden chair that had been unfolded badly or something. So you're not being told hair colour, you're not being told eye colour, you're not being told what clothes they wear, but you get a sense of the person, you know, you get a sense of a picture of them. And uh, there's so many crime writers that do that wonderfully. Um, J.P. Bamari, who I mentioned earlier, was actually kind of um, marketed as a, as a literary thriller writer first off, because he was coming from the literary world. He'd written literary short stories that just happened to be dark, and he had a literary podcast. And so he was literary with a capital L, and he's writing these flat-out brilliant psychological thrillers that just happen to have really good writing in them. It's not like, but it's not like other psychological thrillers don't have good writing in them too. So um, that's what I look for as a judge, and sorry, I've kind of veered off into one of my pet peeves about the hierarchy of storytelling as well, so... Craig, I want to finish with what's probably a double-barreled question. <clears throat> so get ready. I myself have always found when you're interviewing crime fiction authors that you've got to tread a very fine line between giving a sense of the book, but obviously not giving too much away. And the second part to this question is, were you ever tempted to maybe insert, you know, a, a sealed section, uh, you know, the ultimate crime fiction spoiler? <laughs> where you give the complete list of who done it? Yeah, I mean, as a reviewer or as someone who writes a book like this, um, it is a fine balance because you don't want to give spoilers. You don't want to spoil the story for people. Um, the way that I've done it over the years, and some people have said some nice things to me that I've got the balance right. Obviously, everyone has different opinions, but is... I try and basically don't give too much more than the back cover blurb or the first few chapters would give. And if you're, if you're talking about anything that happens later in the book, um, then just keep it as vague as possible so that it doesn't, um, is not spoilery at all. But I largely just try and give a sense of the setup and a sense of the start of the journey. And then kind of I'll review or, um, describe or not judge so much but I guess a little bit you're doing that as a reviewer uh kind of the the, the writing style and the setting and the characters and the, the journey they take us on trying to be non-specific um so that's kind of how I try and get around it with the reviews with crime because you're right you don't want to spoil it. I mean I hate it and I've seen it in like even in big newspapers where someone I even saw it a year or two ago 
someone literally gave away the ending to a book when they were like reviewing it. And it's like your reviews come out the day of the books come out. You've just given the ending to everyone in this major newspaper. Why would you do that, you twat? You know, kind of thing. And it was a case of a fairly decent reviewer just wanting to show how clever they were. And, you know, it's like it's not about you. It's about the book. And uh, you're trying to shine a light and say, um, okay, readers out there, you might like to look at this book. And if you like these kind of books, you might like this. And maybe you won't like it if you like this. And you you just, I mean, I think I, our job as reviewers is, is to, um, is we do want to have like a quality thing where we're saying these ones are really good. You want to look at them. But so a, a lot of reviewers you see in different arts and entertainment things seem to make the reviews more about themselves. Um, and it's nice to be a nice little phrase and be a little bit clever, but you can take that too far, I think. So uh, that's the answer to the first part. And the, and the second part no, I never thought of that. That's, maybe that's a good idea for the second edition. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, a sealed section so that you can open it if you choose like a, to. Maybe, a, maybe in modern times, we just do a, a secret password and go to, you know, online, <laughs> you know, website, <laughs> secret part of the website you can go to or something like that. But, yeah. Well, Craig, it's been great to talk to you and, uh, you know, the best of luck with the book. And there's a hell of a lot of reading to be done that you've pointed out for us today and within the book itself. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, I mean, one of my one of my biggest drivers for doing the book was just to shine a light on our wonderful Australian and New Zealand authors. I've had several people who've reviewed the book tell me that it's the most expensive book they've ever bought, even though it's a normal jacket price, but they've ended up going and immediately buying lots of other books. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. I'm a little bit evil like that. That's got to be a good thing. I've been talking to Craig Sisterson about his new book, Southern Cross Crime, the pocket essential guide to the crime fiction, film and TV of Australia and New Zealand. It's published by Old Castle Books and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.